Welcome to the Kintsugi Heroes podcast, where we share inspirational stories of everyday people going through different challenges and how they overcome them. Please be aware that the story you're about to hear may have moments of deeply felt emotions and personal experiences. If anything you hear has a triggering effect, please reach out to someone who can help keep you safe. If you love this conversation, we'd love you to like and share it with your friends so we can continue to share more inspiration and hope to as many people as possible. Now, listen up for our next hero story. In this episode, I met with Gregory Smith. It's the kind of story that you would watch in a movie or read in a fiction novel. And yet Gregory lived this and it is one of those stories that just stays with you for a long time. Very moving. He had not the normal kind of childhood, a lot of violence, destructive home environment, ended up in an orphanage. He tells his story in graphic detail with reverence, compassion and clarity. Because of the way that he was brought up, he had no life skills and ended up becoming a recluse at one point and living for many years in a rainforest on his own. Despite those things, he was also a sufferer of addiction. He made a very big turnaround in his life in his later stages of life and ended up at university and became employed by the university at the age of 64. Grigory does have a TED talk where he talks about his story. It's a lot shorter than this one. Uh, this, this story with us goes for, into a lot more detail. It's a fabulous story and really drives home the point that we can change our lives and that we're never too old to do something. If you think that, oh, it's too, it's too late for me to do this or do that, absolutely not. It's, if you want to do something, then you should do it. And Gregory demonstrates that and proves it in, in his life. What a wonderful conversation this was with Gregory and I really appreciated the detail, the clarity and the depths that he went to in telling his story so that we all can learn from this. So please sit back and enjoy this conversation with Gregory Smith. Here we are. Um, I'm Aveline and here we are for another episode of the Kintsugi Heroes podcast. I'm here with my guest Gregory Smith. How are you, Gregory? I'm very well, thank you. Yes. It's lovely to have you here. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for the invitation. So yeah. it's, a, it's a privilege. You're welcome. I am really looking forward to getting to know you a bit better. And um, obviously this is, you know, this is all about telling stories of, of our lives. You know, we're humans and we go through things that sometimes are not that easy. And um, I know that you've you've come here to share, and I I just want to thank you before we get started uh, for, for being here. So, can you take me back to I guess uh, explain the context of where you were in life uh, at the time or just before this adversity or the challenge struck hit you? I was an early starter in terms of um, trouble. Uh, I was born into domestic violence, alcoholism, uh, and at the age of two, actually, my father picked me up by the legs and threw me up against the wall, uh, struck my head against the wall. That was my first serious traumatic episode. 
uh, and then my life got worse from there. So, uh, you know, there was just this, you know, I had four siblings, I'm the oldest, and, you know, four siblings came along, and there was just this constant violence um, in the house, anger, um, alcoholism, and, you know, I mean, a part of that reality is for me it was normal, and and that's a very important thing to understand because if we don't understand something that's different, we have no benchmark by which to measure it. And then, you know, I progressed until the age of 10. And at the age of 10, um, my mother gave me away. Me and, uh, and three of my siblings gave me to an orphanage. And I say gave me away because it was never explained to me uh, what was going to happen or you know, what her intent was. You know, the, the messaging I received was, you know, jump in the car, we're going to go and visit an auntie in... Uh, in Armidale, and, you know, an hour later we pull up at this great big gothic-looking building and, um, you know, these ladies dressed in black and white come walking down the stairs and I'm thinking, well, Bernie Muriel dresses very strange and lives in a great big house. I mean, at 10 years old you do have some understanding of who you are and, you know, some expectations around you. But in those days, um, you know, young people were expected to be seen and not heard. And there was very little reason to explain anything to them. So that was a very um, disturbing moment in my life. And that set me off on many, many years of rebellion, of anger, social discontent. After the orphanage, um, you know, I became a problem child and I was placed into various um, corrective institutions, boys' homes, um, re uh, reform schools. Um, uh, the interesting thing is they never reformed me. So, um, and I knew... Inside of those places, I knew that I was kind of special because um, I was the one always in trouble. Um, I was a very angry boy. Um, I would get into lots of fights. Uh, I always fought preemptively because I wasn't a, wasn't um, great in stature, but I was very fast, and um, so. I saw someone as a threat, I would always take the initiative and um, move in it uh, before they had the opportunity. That seen me spend a lot of time in solitary confinement, concrete cells, sometimes for a week at a time, uh, with one meal a day. Sorry, how old were you at, at when, when this was going on? Uh, yeah, this was between the ages of about um, 13 and up till I was 19. Mm -hmm. uh, at the age of 17, I was diagnosed as a sociopath by the state psychiatrist. And put that into context, trauma um, wasn't really recognised. It was just on the psychological radar, the medical radar. And, you know, and we have our veterans from, from uh, Vietnam to thank for all the contributions they made to the understandings of trauma. 
Uh, and, you know, I was presented before this, the state psychiatrist who was kind of stumped as to give me a label. Um, and so he put his hand in the hat and pulled out sociopath. Um, and that's who I was. I was a sociopath. And after I was, it was explained to me what a sociopath was, there was a certain amount of relief inside of me because now I knew what was wrong with me. You know, and it gave me a sense of understanding. Yes. Now, of course, today I understand that, that, you know, all these assumptions were misaligned and, you know, the, the diagnosis wasn't necessarily correct. But at the time, um, it was because I was confused. I, I didn't belong to anybody. You know, I was given away. I was always angry. I was always in trouble. And to be to have a label to to explain all that is actually really important, or it was at the time. Yeah, but I mentioned earlier that um, you know I was in those institutions until I was nineteen. Now most most young people left at the age of eighteen. They called it the Queen's pleasure, um, and the Queen must have really liked me because she kept me there for an extra year. But it was a week before my 19th birthday and I was released and I was called up to the office and given three things, $2.25, set of second-hand clothes and a piece of advice. They come back. The advice I took, the money I went and bought some drinks within a pub, that was my first taste of alcohol. What that did to me was just for a moment in my life, after drinking that alcohol, I felt calm. It just, it was a, a release of tension. And that was a feeling that I was to chase for many years after that. It was just that piece of calm. You know. But that, uh, that wasn't to be. When, you know, I tried, once, once I was out of those places, I tried to do the right thing. I really did. But some of the things, in those institutions, they don't teach you how to get a job. They don't teach you how to find somewhere to live. They don't teach you how to pay the bills. And for myself, having spent so much time in solitary confinement, I, nearly, I never really learned how to communicate mm-hmm. or be a part of um, with other people. Mm. For much of my life after that, I was always on the outside. I was always that that odd person that didn't fit in, you know. And that, of course, creates um, emotion and trauma and more anger for me. That went on until I was, you know, I, I tried to get married. And today I understand, you know, I, you know, most people take, most men take a wife. I took a hostage. No, I was still angry, you know, but fortunately she was a little bit smarter than I was at the time and she got out of that uh, relationship very quickly and uh, all, all credit to her for that. But then I just wandered around, I, you know, trying to get jobs, you know, the best I could do was a cleaner job or um, gardening, a bit of gardening, uh, seasonal work, picking fruit, and that was me. I always wanted to do the right thing. I always wanted to be a part of, but I, I never had those skills. 
at the age of about 35, quite by chance, I found myself sitting in a rainforest with the leeches all around me and the rain coming down. And when it was all said and done, it was just a moment of, of peace. You know, when I stopped and thought about it, the reason that I felt so peaceful in that forest is because people were a long way away and I didn't have to be a part of it. I could just be me. And I liked it. I liked it a lot. I liked it so much that I decided I'd stay there for a while. In that forest, you know, I learned to survive. I learned a new way of surviving and it was an adventure for a little while because it was different. I was independent. I didn't have to rely on anything. Nobody was telling me what an idiot I was or how disgusting I was or anything like that. You know, there was just me. And the problem was that when I went into the forest, I took me with me, which meant that I took all that pain, all that trauma, all that hurt was living inside me. And so I still needed a means by which to, to kill that pain, to anaesthetize myself to a point where um, I could actually survive. Now, over time, I developed techniques which are probably not uh, mentionable on a social podcast um, to, to barter with hippies and other types of people. Uh, which actually gave me quite quite a substantial way of life. You know, I learned to brew my own alcohol up in the forest and grow my own herbs, shall we say, uh, in the forest. Um, the problem with that is, uh, you know, I had this unlimited supply of alcohol and herbs. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I was eating a lot of the herbs and washing them down with um with alcohol, uh, which made me very sick over the years. After five or six years, psychosis started to move in and I started to become quite ill. But it turned out I was in there for about 10 years and, you know, what moved me out of the forest was I lost a, I lost an argument with some aliens. Basically, they arrived at my campsite one evening and said, you know, because, I, you know, I would verbalise my thoughts on occasions. One evening when these people arrived, they said to me, you know, so you want to die in the forest? And I said, yes, that's right. And they said, you don't want to hurt anyone else and that's why you're living in a forest. And I said, yes, that's right. And then they used my own logic against me. And they said, well, if you die in a forest, your body will rot and there's a possibility nobody will ever find you. And I said, yes, that's right. Well, that's what I want. And I said, but what about your family? What about your sisters that you haven't seen for, you know, 20 years, 25, 30 years? You'll hurt them. They will never have closure. They will never know what happened to you. And that actually touched me. That actually got to me. And I felt that they, at that point they had the upper hand. And the deal was that if I lost that argument, I had to reconsider my position and give society another chance. And I lost that argument. How many How many of them were there? There were three of them, mm-hmm. outnumbered. Mm. So, 
I made that commitment and um, I packed up my belongings in the forest and I left. The ABC did a little documentary on me. When they did their research, they actually found the day that I left the forest because, as it turns out, as I was leaving the forest, I got hit by a car. Oh. And so I was run over and I, um, somebody called an ambulance so I ended up in hospital. And, yeah, I mean, I had trouble staying in the hospital. Um, I ended up doing a bargain with them because you know, it had been a long time since I'd been indoors. So mm. I wasn't coping too well with confined spaces. Mm. Um, and, I, you know, we, we negotiated that I would be an outpatient and this was, you know, but when I walked out of the forest, I was 40, 42 kilo. Mm -hmm. So um, mm. about half the weight I am today. Mm -hmm. So I was in a lot of trouble. Uh, I needed a walking stick to walk. Um, I had a beard almost down to my belly button. And uh, I had probably hadn't showered for years. Did you so, swim in a creek when you were in the forest? Did you? Yeah, there was a creek there, and uh, in the early days, I would take regular baths in the creek, and that. But the sicker I got, uh, or I became, the less frequent those mm -hmm. those baths and those sort of yeah those mm. washes occurred. Mm. And um, when you say sicker, you mean the psychosis? Psychosis, scurvy, mm -hmm. malnutrition. Um, mm -hmm. yeah, there was, there's quite a, quite a few things. And I mean, the trauma as well, mm. you know, so, um, I was also dealing, but I mean, one of the things that I did in the forest, and this is really important, the forest, you know, when I, in the early days, especially, I would sit around the fire or sit at the fire of a night and I would explore my past and I would try and understand what had happened and why it happened. I didn't have, like, I, I, I had the, the thoughts in my mind, but I didn't have the language to describe or to explain what was going on inside of me or what my understandings were about what happened to me. This, I mean, that, there was a lot of this, you know, I mean, years of this and trying to understand. Um, and it was in that forest that I started to understand that, um, and it's no excuse for my father, but I started to understand why he was like he was, because he was traumatised and he was angry and he didn't understand what was happening to him. You know? And so I had to look past my father to his father mm. and I started to see more and more deeply that that cycle of abuse and trauma within family lines or within my family line. And I could see it with my mother as well because my mother would agitate my father to the point of um, explosion. Yeah, and I could see when I started to look at her um, ancestry, I could see all that trauma in, uh, in her lines as well. All of a sudden it was about not blaming people but understanding what was going on and not saying that it was appropriate, absolutely not, but saying that they didn't understand what was happening to them either. Yeah, you know, and 
all of a sudden, and this is while I'm in that forest, you know, I'm seeing that I'm actually developing an understanding that I, I have to be able to change things within me. The orphanage that I was in was run by the Sisters of Mercy, and they were very, very cruel. They were very, very cruel people. I would often find myself locked under the staircase in a little closet and going without meals. Admittedly, I did run away every weekend. I mean, that contributed to the trauma as well. Yeah, but mm. So all these understandings, and I, you know, today I understand that I needed to spend that time in the forest walks anywhere away from people so that I could start to explore myself and I could start to understand myself. What I did, I gave myself the gift of time mm. to begin to understand who I am, to explore myself. And in some ways to do, to decatholicize. Because up to a point in that forest, everything I did was a sin. Mm. And my guilt was so heavy, it was such a burden that it was almost impossible to carry. So I needed to pull that apart and look at look at that and understand, you know, uh, morality versus um, intent versus a whole lot of those philosophical understandings. Yeah, you know? and I was able to do that. Sorry for the interruption. This is Ian Westmoreland, the founder of Kintsugi Heroes, and thank you for listening to this story from one of our amazing heroes. Our mission is for these stories to provide hope and inspiration to people experiencing life challenges and to also educate the broader community on how best to provide support. If you would like to help us to continue to produce more hero stories and cover more adversity themes, we would welcome all donations. These can be made via our website, kintsugiheroes.com.au. The donate function is at the bottom of the homepage. We'd also welcome any feedback. You can email me direct using ian at kintsugiheroes.com.au. Now let's get back to the story. Well, you know, I'll go back to, you know, I left the forest. Once I started to gain a little bit of health um, through the hospital system, the social workers were absolutely brilliant because I'd forgotten who I was. And they were able to establish my identity, uh, register me for disability support pension because I was expected to die um, you know, within a year or so. I was that sick. Here I am. I was up on the Gold Coast in the you know, Tweed Heads area and on this income that I hadn't you know, I hadn't seen that much money for a very long time. And, you know, there's a simple understanding here. What does a practicing alcoholic drug addict, homeless, do with all this money? Because they back paid me about three months. Well, the obvious is, you know, you go and buy a new backpack. In my case, I have a sack. And then you fill it up with everything you love. Hmm. Booze and drugs, you know. I think in that backpack I had, you know, a cask of fruit elixir couple of bottles of bourbon, tobacco, marijuana, cocaine, a little bit of amphetamine just in case. And I think that explains what my, you know, 
priorities were at that time. Kill the pain, kill the pain, kill the pain. So even though you'd been in the forest, you'd faced, you'd deconstructed all the things, you'd faced who you were and the why and the past and, you know, you still had pain because after you came out, you were still seeking, like you said, you had a party in your backpack to numb all that pain. So it was still there. Look, the pain had intensified Mm. because I had done all that deconstruction Mm. and so I had a better understanding. And it got to a point where about February 2000, I was sitting on a a, um, bench behind the Tweed Heads Hospital looking at the Tweed River. It's a beautiful view there. I'm sitting there and I've got all this, you know, I've got my backpack next to me and I've got all this stuff next to me in the backpack. I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, you know, and this is a really important moment because I thought if I only had one person that I could tell all my troubles to, I'd be okay. That was not a good thought for the loneliest man in Australia. Because all of a sudden it struck me with devastating clarity of my situation. You know, I was 45 years old. Hmm. Everything I owned was in that backpack next to me and I had not one friend in the world. That was the product of my life at 45. And I had a little reflection and that reflection was, you know, when I was just a, you know, a babe, you know, five, six years old, I remember there was a passion in my gut. There was a passion for life. You know, dreaming of being the fireman, dreaming of being, you know, the doctor, being the hero. Yeah, and that passion burned at that age. But as I sat there on that park bench, the only thing left of that fire was a tiny little amber. But as I thought that, I suddenly found myself in a cloud of fog. I couldn't see past my nose. I became aware that I was really, really angry. I was really, really tired, but I was ready for the next fight. All my life, I was ready for the next fight. Always. Then this fog started to recede. And as the fog receded, I could see my hands. And in my hands, I held this great big double-edged sword. And the fog receded a little bit further. And I became aware I was, you know, I was ready to wield that sword. And I looked around and I couldn't see anybody to fight. And the fog receded a little bit further and I could see all this devastation and all this destruction all around me. But there was still no one to fight. Then the fog receded all the way to the horizon. And the destruction and devastation went as far as the horizon. But there was no one to fight. And then all of a sudden I realised, all my life, I've always been fighting myself. There was never, ever anyone else to fight. Every fight I had was against myself. And that's what created all this devastation. That's what created all this destruction. I tried to throw that sword away, but I couldn't. And I dropped to my knees. And I'm thinking, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to do this anymore. And all of a sudden I was sitting on the park bench again and I could see the river. It was a nice sunny day. And I was thinking, 
And I made a decision. And my decision was, no matter what I had to do, I wasn't. I did not want to be that person that I was sitting on that park bench that day. And I was willing to do whatever was necessary to change who I was. So I got up from the park bench and I walked away. And I left that backpack there. I've never had a drug, never had a cigarette or a bit of alcohol since that day. The interesting thing is I thought my life previously was pretty tough. My life was just about to get a whole lot tougher because I had to learn how to be somebody in a society that I didn't like. The difference between the past and the future was in the past, I didn't understand that I had no control over what was happening to me. I was a victim. Mm. I was a victim of my circumstance. I was a, a slave to my emotions. I was a slave to my past. I was a slave to the alcohol, the drugs, other people's emotions. Going forward, I was no longer a victim. Okay, I I suddenly made a decision to have choice. That wasn't easy because I had to learn discernment. There were lots of things I had to learn. And I didn't have role models. I had to conjure up the idea of a role model. Who do I want to be? Who do I want to model myself along the lines of? For better or for worse, I chose a medieval knight. And, you know, you know, what would this knight do in this situation? What would the chivalry be? You know, what would be the morals, the ethics going forward? Does that is that um, reflective of that earlier desire you had to be a hero? Possibly. You mean, mm. Possibly. Yeah. But I think it was more along the lines of I needed direction. And I needed comfort in that direction. Because to be honest, the worlds in which I traversed through, there were not a lot of good people. You know, and if there were, I certainly, and there probably were, you know, I mean, I couldn't see them because my world was so dark. So I had to start to turn the lights on in my world, start shining, um, take the bushel off the candle, so to speak. Were you still experiencing pain? Even Absolutely. after, yeah, okay. Absolutely. I say those next probably few years were the most painful of my life. But my attitude was, bring it on. I can take this. Bring it on. I had to learn how to communicate, how to talk to people. I had to learn how to accept help from people. That was that was big. I also decided that, you know, if I was going to live in society and I was going to give society another chance, I needed to work. You know, so I didn't want to be on this disability support bench. I didn't like that concept of disabled disability. In that first couple of companies, I applied for hundreds and hundreds of jobs, but I couldn't even get an interview. Nobody was interested in, you know, an ex-hermit with very bad beer brewing skills and and very you know, quite good horticultural skills, actually, but but they, it's just not what employers were looking for, you know. Mm. I mean, I could track, uh, I could track through the forest. I was a very, I became a very good tracker, reading signs, and I learned that there were 
I could, there were some skills transferable into the modern society. Reading sign was one of them. Mm-hmm. And but I can do that quite well today. The way, where that led me was, you know, I was in a soup kitchen up on the Gold Coast and the goss was computers were the way of the future. I mean, this is, you know, 2000, 2001. Computers were the way of the future. You know, they were going to be a big thing and all this stuff. I thought, oh, yeah, okay, well, I better get onto this boat. And I found a six-week free computer hardware course at Kingscliff TAFE. And so I signed up for that. And I learned two very valuable lessons from that. Firstly, I had computers. Mm-hmm. Secondly, was I love to learn. Now, I'm actually quite good at learning. And so I decided to go and do my school certificate because that was the, you know, in my world, that was a pinnacle of success, mm. the school certificate. So, but it turned out I couldn't really do that. TAFEs didn't do it anymore. Community colleges really didn't do that. But up at Southport TAFE in Queensland, I was offered, oh, I, I learned of a, what they call a tertiary preparation course. Mm-hmm. The only word I understood in there was course. Right. I had no idea what tertiary was mm-hmm. and I had no idea what the idea of preparation was. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I went up, I got, you know, um, I got chauffeur driven up there in the Mercedes and. Whose Mercedes was that? Public transport, you know, Mercedes buses. Oh, yeah. yeah so that's oh, the way okay. I was thinking at the time. It was like, right. what a great world, you know? <laughs> I can just jump on the Mercedes and, you know, so the way I'm thinking. Yeah, yeah. And so everything's beautiful. Every uh, mm. An I experience, mean, an adventure because it's all new. Yeah, yeah and this yeah. is better than having to saddle me horse, put me armour on and ride up. Mm. I can just jump on the Mercedes and get chauffeur driven. Yes. So I went up to Southport TAFE and I went in there with all my arrogance and I asked them to sign me up for it, and they said, no, it doesn't quite work like that. This is a paid, um, a fee-paying um, program. You know, you're going to have to pay your fees. And I'm all, well, I, you know, I don't have a lot of money. And I said, can I pay it off? And they looked at me, and they went out, the person went out and brought someone else in, and I had a bit of a chat with them. And we arranged, you know, we, we, we had an arrangement. Each Monday morning I would come in and pay a certain amount of money and for that week they'd teach me. So my negotiation skills were improving. And that was a about, a, I think it was about an eight or a nine-month course. Yeah. And a lot of things happened to me during that time because I was a part of a classroom, I was a part of people sitting around having a bit of lunch together, having a chat. I had my first coffee ever with another human being during that time. It's the first time I ever sat down and actually had another coffee mm. with another human being. And sorry, how old were you at that time? I was moving towards 46. Okay. Yeah. Wow. I was invited to my first ever barbecue. At the same time, I was still sleeping down on the beach. I was still homeless. And if somebody asked me where I live, I said, you know, quite flippantly down next to the beach. Got a nice place down there. Just sort of gloss over that. People didn't need to know. Did you do that out of choice because you were just more comfortable there? Um, no. Look, I I actually approached the counsellor at the TAFE, telling them that I really wanted a place to live, but I didn't know how to do it. 
Mm-hmm. And I don't think she understood what quite what I was trying to say. Mm. But what she said to me is, oh, well, you go to a real estate and you can have a look in the real estate. I know this. I've never done it. I've never been taught. That's the difference between those mechanical skills and that theory. I mean, I can understand theory. Theory. I'm very good at theory. That's probably one of my strengths. But when it comes to hands-on mechanical actions and, and processes, that's a whole different thing for me. My sister, um, on the few occasions that I spoke to her, you know, one, at one point she said to me, Gregory, you're a very intelligent man, but the problem is you have absolutely no common sense. You know, I took offence to that and I never spoke to her for years. Today I understand what she meant and I totally agree with her. But so, but I mean, that was a, that tape course was a really mind opening exploration for me. And I got through it and I actually duxed the, the past. So, you know, I did quite, I actually met the Gold Coast mayor. You know, uh, I have no idea who it was, wondering Ron Clark, I think. And I ended up with a pretty good, um, grade point average and I got into university and I had no idea what I, and that's one of the scariest things I ever did was go to university. Mm. And I was still homeless. I was homeless until halfway through my undergrad. Um, it was it was a long time before I was ready mm-hmm. because I lived in survival mode for so long. It took a long time to transition into community, to transition into a sense of um, being okay. Feeling uh, safe. Being safe, yeah. I, re- I did have a little place uh, on Chevron Island for a little while. And it was just a tiny little flat, one-bedroom flat in amongst all these great big skyscrapers. And I couldn't live there. I couldn't live there because it was so claustrophobic. And first or second night there, the first night was horrible. It was actually absolutely horrible. The next night I went and I liberated a steel hubcap off a Volkswagen so that I could, and collected a whole lot of sticks so I could have a little fire in the place so that there was a little bit of, like, connection there. Mm-hmm. And I did that. I had a little fire every night for about, for as long as I was there. But I had to pack up and leave. I couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. I just couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. But I learned IKEA skills there because I didn't have any furniture. I liberated milk crates and I took the the bathroom door off and laid it on the milk crates and that was my bed And because I didn't want to sleep on the floor anymore. Mm. Like I'd slept on the ground too, too. So, you know, the bathroom door on some milk crates, perfect for a bed. And there was a good table and had a lot of different uses actually. Yeah, I did, you know, going through university, I did okay. So, um, what, what did you study? Studied sociology, mm. social sciences. Mm. Towards the end of it, yeah. and the irony of this doesn't does not escape me. You know, towards the end of it, I received a phone call from one of my lecturers offering me work, mm. and it was like I couldn't get a job. That's how I ended up in university. 
And now I've not quite finished my undergrad and I'm being offered work. You know, I'm not even looking for it. The condition was that I go on and study, so I go on and do an honours, which I did. Mm-hmm. I ended up with a first-class honours, um, which gave me an Australian scholarship award to go on and do a PhD. So, um, you know, and I completed my PhD in 2015. I never gave up. You know, I never gave up. I was 64 years old when I first when I received my first tenured position. Now, I'm 67 now, and I've just had my the birth of my son. I work for a lot of different companies. I, um, the second largest Medivac provider in the U.S., which is basically Medicare provider in the U.S., has sought me out to be a special consultant to them on specific niche areas. Yeah, you know, I work on the I've worked on the New South Wales Primary as priority projects um, to end street sleeping. Life's a wonderful thing. Gregory, at what point did the pain go away or at what point did you realize I'm not in pain anymore? There are two types of pain. I think there's a song about it, pleasure and pain. Yeah. I'm not sure who sang that, but there's a there's a pleasure in certain types of pain because there's an understanding, there's an outcome. The pain that kept me in the darkness ended on that on that park bench that day that I walked away from that backpack. Mm-hmm. The pain going forward was bring it on. Let's get this sorted. There were things I needed to learn. Mm-hmm. I needed to learn how to communicate with people. I needed to learn how to be a part of. I needed to learn how to grieve. I needed to learn how to be sad. I needed to learn how to be disappointed. I needed to learn lots and lots of things. But some of the biggest things that I learned is what other people think about me is none of my business. But what I think of other people is my business. And if I start thinking things about other people, that says more about me than it does them. Mm. One of the things that's really important to me today is understanding pathways through trauma. It's understanding that, you know, sometimes the simplest bridges can be built to guide us through that. But what's required, regardless of who we are, is a willingness to be open-minded and to be honest with ourselves. It's, it sounds to me like that's what you did on that park bench. You know, I've often thought, you know, when I've looked back on my life at, at the times when, you know, I might have thought that I am trying to create the new me or create a new part of me, in fact, what I was doing was figuring out who I really was. They're probably all cliches, aren't they? One of them is a very clear understanding that there's only two things that I truly own. One is my name. In a thousand years, if they choose to talk about me, that's what they'll use. That's what, you know, that's, that's who I am, my name. The other one is my word as a human being. And I own that and I put that out there for other people to either 
trust, not trust, to accept, to judge me by. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So my word is very valuable Mm. to me. What I say and what I do need to be congruent. Mm. I love that. That's really important. One of the things that I've learned is that I used to have a really bad habit of interfering with my life. And I had no idea what the universe had planned for me. And I would always interfere and it would always cause grief and pain. So I've had to learn, put the paddle in the canoe and just enjoy the view. And if the canoe comes up against the bank and I'm asked to get out and do something, I do it. And I have no resistance. Yeah, while I was paddling against the flow, there was always resistance. There was always conflict. There was always hard work. I found that in a day I got very little done. But if I go with that, you know, if I go with the canoe, I don't try and go against it, I get a lot more done. There's less resistance and I'm much happier. Well, there's, you know, those things in themselves are just worth so much. And I think, you know, I, I love I love hearing that they're, they're the, I guess, the gold nuggets. They're, these are the silver linings of the things that you've gotten from the journey, and I'm sure there's, you know, a lot more. But those things in and of themselves are so powerful. When I'm communicating with others or sharing stories with others because stories are about magic mm. yeah, and the words are about magic, you know, and when I, when I look up at that rear vision mirror, of life, you know, and I see what's behind me, all I see is treasure. There's no longer any pain. There's a lot of things back there that fit a situation. They're the right shape, they're the right fit for a given moment. You know, and if I'm sharing with someone, having a discussion with someone, there's something back there that I can use that's beneficial to them, but, you know, that's great, and that happens a lot. I'm very fortunate because there's not one bad day that's behind me. Mm. You know, every single day that I have lived, there's a treasure within that. Mm. All I have to do is be wise enough to identify and understand it. Yeah. Acceptance, honesty, looking within. Yep. Everything is exactly as as it is meant to be right here, right now. My mission, should I choose to accept it, is just merely accept it. Yeah. What a beautiful, beautiful way to sort of almost wrap this up. I've got one last question for you, Gregory. I mean, your story brings out, there's so many elements to it. And um, if there's someone listening to this who might be going through any any aspect of what you've talked about, is there any piece of advice that you'd like to give them or share? Stop fighting. As painful as it is and as scary as it is, stop fighting. Don't give up. Don't ever give up. And trust yourself. Trust yourself. Don't, don't put your faith in others. Trust yourself in the first instance. Because at the end of the day, I haven't got it on, but I, I'll get it. He won't need to just edit this, but I'll, I'll just grab it. I have here a little gold teddy ring. I'd never been given a toy as a kid, and 
when I was going to that tape and I just started university, I went out and I bought that teddy bear ring because I'd identified the hurt child inside. Mm-hmm. And I realized that I needed to become the responsible parent to take care of that hurt child. And so I gave that hurt child this ring. Symbolism is very important in a recovery, especially a traumatic recovery, PTSD. Mm. Symbolism can be very, very powerful. Mm. Yet so many of us shun it. Don't underestimate the power of desire. Don't underestimate the power of forgiveness, which is very important. For me to be able to forgive my parents Mm. has freed me. It's also cut that chain or that that mm. cycle of abuse. Now, I don't need to be my, like my parents because I've understood that and I've forgiven them. They're the things that are very helpful to yeah. understand. Yeah. I want to thank you for everything that you've shared with me and there's just so much wisdom and just uh, heartfelt knowledge and just things to process, things to, you know, I'm sure you have stunned a lot of people with your stories and um, because it is a road less travelled of no one's ever travelled it, that kind of story. Um, and I just want to acknowledge, yeah, your bravery. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for, you know, fighting the fight and getting to where you are today. So that little amber that you didn't squash out, that was burning as a five, six-year-old, you know, has done well. And I'm really grateful. Thank you very much. Thank you, Gregory. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Kintsugi Heroes. Please like and share the show to your friends so we can get this out to even more people. If you have a story you'd like to share with us, please reach out using the contact details below. And join us next week for our next Heroes story. Until then, keep being you and remember that we are all heroes in our own unique way. Only when it's broken. Only when you're broken Only